Ask any church in the world, any Christian church, they would all say, go and make disciples. Jesus said that, that was his last command, that's what we should be doing. But how we define discipleship will determine a lot about what your church looks like. And as a Christian, how you define discipleship will determine a lot about what you end up looking like as well. I think the most important question any church and any Christian needs to ask is, what is God like? And then the second most important question is, what is a disciple? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And I think if I asked people those questions and they were honest, they told me what their God looks like, and they were honest and told me what they think a disciple looks like, I'd be able to tell a lot about how they're going to spend their money, how they're going to spend their time, what the priorities in their life is going to be. And if they were a church, I'd be able to tell a lot about what their passions are going to be, what programs they're going to have, what kind of church they're going to be. So this is an important question. What is a disciple? How do we make disciples? How do we fulfill this command from Jesus Christ? And I think the, the, that's the question on a lot of our minds. Uh, I, I have not yet met a Christian who told me, I don't want to make disciples. I don't want to see people come to know Jesus or encounter Jesus and begin to follow him. And I don't think this is an issue of a lack of willingness. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see their lives transformed by becoming like him. But I think if we're honest, for most of us, we want to obey. We want to make disciples, but we don't really know what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to do it. And this is not an ought to message where I'm like, you ought to be doing this. This is what you should be doing. This is a how to message. Because I think if we're honest, all of us would say, the desire of my heart is to see disciples of Jesus Christ made. But I'm not really sure how to do that when I go to work on Monday or when I talk to my neighbor next door or when I encounter people in my community. Jeff Christofferson uh, he leads an organization called the Send Institute, and they gather people from different networks and denominations and organizations, and they get together and they talk about the future of the North American church. And you have these really educated theologians, and you have missiologists who, that's just a fancy way of saying that they've got lots of degrees in how to make disciples. And they all get together and they talk about the future of the North American church, and here's what he said. As once responsive geographies become less susceptible, less susceptible to the skillful merchandising towards Christian memory, we find our tolls feeble, ineffective, and dull. He used way too many big words there because I guess he has all these degrees. But what essentially he's saying is the things that used to work aren't working. Right? Isn't that what we're finding in our churches and what we're finding in our Christian life? People used to have a Christian memory. They used to have a foundation that we could build on to introduce them to Jesus, and they don't seem to have that foundation anymore, and we're kind of confused about what to do. The ways that we've been making disciples for hundreds of years, perhaps, in North America have suddenly not had the same results anymore. Things seem to be changing, and we don't know what to do. For generations in America, some of the things we've been doing to make disciples of Jesus Christ just don't seem to be working, or at least not working as well as they used to. And what I'm going to encourage us to do this morning is to recover the discipleship, the way that the early church made disciples. We're going to go back not to the early days of America, but we're going to go back to the early days of the Christian church. 
We're going to go back to how Jesus' first disciples made disciples. Now, this is not a message to make you feel guilty. Have you ever been to one of those? I've tried to learn as much as I can about making disciples because I believe that's the reason I exist in this world as a follower of Jesus, is to introduce new people to Jesus and to teach them to live and love like he did. And so I've tried to read as much as I can and go to as many trainings and seminars as I can and learn everything I can about how do you talk to people far away from God about who Jesus is and how they can know him. And I've noticed that a lot of these trainings I go to end up making me feel really bad about what I'm not doing instead of telling me what I could be doing. And this today is not about making you feel guilty. I'm not standing up here as an expert and like, I've got it all figured out. If you guys were all just like me, everything would be great. Our community would be amazing if you all just followed me. No, I'm learning just like you. I'm a church planter, they said, which means I'm starting a church from nothing. And sometimes in our culture today, in our Christian culture, church planners have become kind of like the bad boy rock stars of the Christian world. They're like established churches. Those are the old guys. The young punk rockers are the church planters. You know, they're doing all the cool stuff. Church planters are just as lost when reaching the culture as you are. So we can all, you know, take a big sigh. We're all learning how to reach people for Jesus together. Now, I do think one of the advantages of church planting is you have nothing to lose because you have nothing, and so you try some new things. And sometimes that can lead to some trying some new things that are good and some new things that reach people. But I think that as we talk about discipleship, we need to get back to how did the early church make disciples? And I want to inspire you today, not make you feel guilty about something you're not doing, but help you understand what we can be doing and how it's perhaps more simple than we imagine. I want to give you the vision of a better future where you can make disciples in your workplace and in your neighborhood and at community events and every place you find yourself. I find that a lot of trainings that I go to has a charismatic person up front who enjoys talking to people. They're an extrovert, and they found a way to make their extroversion sound very spiritual because literally, if they weren't a follower of Jesus, they'd be talking to everybody about something anyways, and so they just tack Jesus on it, and now it's super spiritual because they talk to everybody about Jesus. And as many of you are like me, as an introvert, we sit out there and we're like, I don't like talking to a bunch of people. And then they make us feel guilty about the fact that we don't enjoy talking to people. And they're like, don't you want to tell people about Jesus? Why aren't you like me wanting to talk to everybody? And I think that you can be an introvert and you can be about the mission of Jesus Christ. You can be an introvert and make disciples. See, Jesus is measuring faithfulness and fruitfulness. He's not measuring or comparing stats against extroverts. You don't like to talk to a lot of people? That's okay. I bet you still have a good friend. You love to talk to a lot of people? Awesome. This is not some kind of competition where you're measuring how many disciples you've made against someone else. Jesus didn't say, everyone make 10,000 disciples. He said, everyone make disciples. You might make one. You might make 100. But all of us can be making disciples. And it's interesting, the disciples knew how to make disciples. You know, when we say discipleship, or we ask someone to define what it means to be a disciple, we might get a bunch of different answers. And like I said at the beginning, I don't think most of us understand how to make disciples in a modern world or culture or America anymore. 
But the disciples of Jesus, they weren't confused. Why? Because they were disciples. They had just become what Jesus was asking them to do. They had just gone through the process that Jesus was asking them to share with other people. In fact, the reason we call them disciples is because they went through this process and began to make disciples. We really can't say we're disciples of Jesus until we begin making disciples. And in the first century, the term disciple was not unusual. It was a commonplace term. You don't walk around in your world today and you're not at your workplace and there's a new person who comes into the company and you say, hey, come over to my cubicle for a little while. I'm going to disciple you in this new you know, uh, computer program. Nobody says that. You don't, you don't use that. Outside of the church, we don't really talk about discipleship. The terms are weird to us. Uh, but in the first century, the term rabbi and disciple were commonplace. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi in the Middle East. There were many teachers of the Old Testament who went around and they gathered followers called disciples who learned what they taught and then followed the lifestyle that they lived. And we might simplify it like this. A disciple is a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved. And our text today is from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is a very familiar passage. Some call it the Great Commission. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Even though it's not directly mentioned here in Acts chapter 1 in verses 4 and 5, while Jesus spent this time after his resurrection, before his ascension that we find here, he told them, he ordered them rather not to depart from Jerusalem, but he says, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but soon you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so the disciples knew how to make disciples. He told them here, go everywhere and make disciples. But he reminded them, hey, hang on a second. Before you start the process, make sure you wait for the Holy Spirit. We're here wondering, how do we make disciples? They knew. They were like, oh, we've seen you do it. We're ready to jump into it. We know exactly what we're doing. And he says, hang on. You know what you're doing, but... Without the Holy Spirit, this isn't going to happen. And so the first thing I want to mention as we talk about making disciples in a modern world is we're going to need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the invisible heavy lifting. He does the spiritual heavy lifting, and he has the ability and the tendency to correct our mistakes and create opportunities where there are none. Every day, as you sit in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, the Holy Spirit is at work creating opportunities for you to create disciples. The Holy Spirit is creating peace and harmony and creating bridges between you and people far away from God so that you can introduce them to the way of Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, it would be impossible for us to make disciples. But notice next, the first thing we see in this passage that Jesus says is go. In verse 19, he says, go. He says, I've got all authority, and so you should go. For years as churches, we've been building buildings and creating great programs and shows and saying, 
come. But Jesus said, go. See, church is not a community or an event. Church is people. We are the church. Instead of asking people far from God to come to us, we must go to them. And for a long time in America, people had enough general Christianity that we could say, come, and they'd be like, oh, okay. But now things are beginning to change, and we must recapture the first century discipleship model. We must go to where people are. Now, when I first moved up here as a church planter, I tried things that worked in Tennessee. I was a pastor down in Tennessee, and I thought, okay, there's some declining or or some waning returns on some of these um, methods in Tennessee. And I was like, things are probably a little bit farther along in the north, but I'm still going to try them when I got down here. And one of the things we tried was we hung thousands of door hangers on doors, inviting people to come to church or come to a small group. No one came from that. We spent thousands of dollars printing them, hundreds of man hours putting them out in uh, Radnor and Haverford and Lower Marion townships, talking to people on their door stoops or on their porches and hanging door hangers and uh, thousands of door hangers, and we had nobody. I got lots of angry letters and emails and calls, but I had no one come to anything. So we tried mailers. You know, we sent out mailers uh, to, we got a list of addresses of people who had recently moved into the community in the last six months. And we sent out a thousand letters to people. And we just said, hey, we're new to the community too. We want to help you on your spiritual journey and invite you to this church we're starting. We told them all about it. I was all hyped up about it. And so I'm all excited, typing away, you know, and signed all these letters, licked all these letters, stamped all these letters mailed them out. We had one person who said, I'm really mad at my church. I want to come to your church. He came for two weeks before he was mad at our church and wanted to go somewhere else. But most of the time, our efforts have been focused on telling people, come. And those efforts aren't working, right? That's exactly what I tried. I sent out all these things and I said, come. And people were like, no, I'm good. I'm not going to come. But Jesus told me to go. And so one of the things we began to think about is what are people's third place? What do I mean by that? People go to work, they go home, and most people have a third place. It's the other place besides work and home that they go to at least once a week. A place that they're not forced to go to, but they enjoy going to. What is the third place where people hang out? How can I get there and begin to build relationships for people? See, for too long, we've abdicated discipleship to the church. We've said, hey, come here, we'll teach you how to follow Jesus. We'll teach you who Jesus is and how to live and love like him. But they're not coming here anymore. And so we have to go to where they are. Having someone know you and become a close friend with you, getting to know you as a passionate follower of Jesus is better than having someone come here for one week and never coming back ever again. And I think sometimes we think, well, they'll come here one week and it'll just be so amazing. They'll just be so taken with the speaker or with the music or the show or the building that they'll just, they'll want to come back. And what we found is that used to work and it doesn't always work so well anymore. But if you build a relationship with someone, if you meet them at a third place and you build a relationship with them, suddenly you can begin to teach them how to live and love like Jesus, who Jesus really is 
and what he wants for them over a period of time without insisting that they come here at a certain time in a certain place. The goal is not bigger churches. Our goal is more disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I think as people mature as disciples of Jesus Christ, they need to be involved into a church because we can't follow Jesus on our own. We have to be a part of his body. But if you want bigger churches, offer better programs than the churches down the street, and you'll get some people to leave there and come here. But that doesn't change eternity. And what Jesus wants us to do is to go out into the darkest places in our communities, into our workplace, into our city and our world, and to make disciples. And so you notice the next thing Jesus says here, go and make disciples. They were to model exactly what Jesus did. You don't see any of the disciples here. They were always asking silly questions. And uh, you don't see any of them saying, Jesus, how do we make disciples? Like, none of them asked that, right? They knew. Because why? They had just spent three years being taught by Jesus to become disciples so that they knew what to do. And I think there's three key elements to how Jesus made disciples. Now, we could look at more, but for sake of time, I'm limiting these to the three major ones. Number one, Jesus spent time with people. Number two, Jesus intentionally shared meals with people. And three, Jesus healed and helped people. First of all, Jesus spent time with people. I believe that the, that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, moves at the speed of trust. Until people trust us, they won't care what we have to say about Jesus. And sometimes we really want them to know what we have to say about Jesus, and they need it. But we spend no time building trust, and so they're not interested. Richard Baxter said, If they see that you love them, you can say anything to them. We've been quick to tell the culture what they need without first teaching the culture that we love them. We need to stop seeing the people around us as enemies to be resisted or avoided or overcome and begin to see them as Jesus sees them, as prisoners captured in the darkness, desperate to be rescued. If you invite most people to a church service or a Bible study and you have no trust with them, that's a really big gap for them to jump all at once. In the old days, in the past, there was a Christian tradition and people, that was a smaller jump. Like, yeah, I should be in church. Yeah, I still believe there's a God. I pretty much believe the Bible. I just haven't been in church for a while. And so it was a small jump back. But that gap's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And with each generation, we found less and less people who affirm any part of Christianity in North America. And so what we have to do is begin to bridge that gap with trust. We need to begin building relationships with people far away from God so that we can bridge the gap between them and Jesus with trust. I think many times what I would do is I would invite people to church because then I wouldn't have to spend as much time with those messy, difficult people that made me feel uncomfortable. I'm like, just get into the church and you'll get it. You'll hear about Jesus, and I won't necessarily have to sacrifice my time or the fact that being around you is difficult. But Jesus has put these people into my sphere, into my world, so that I can disciple them. 
One of the, uh, the mantras, the kind of mottos that's been for our church is being intentionally relational and explicitly Christian. This means we think about how can we build relationships with people? That difficult college neighbor who's always partying in our apartment, um, how do I intentionally build a relationship with him so I can develop trust while being explicitly Christian? That person at the coffee shop that I've begun to become friends with, how do I build trust with them and begin intentionally developing that relationship while at the same time never hiding the fact that Jesus is the most important thing in my life? And what I found is as I intentionally invest in people and they know that I love them and I build trust with them, we naturally begin to talk about spiritual things because every person on this planet, whether they're an atheist or an agnostic or they worship some other God, everyone's asking the same spiritual questions. Why am I here? Where am I going? And what am I supposed to do before I do, before I leave? Everyone's asking these spiritual questions about relationships and about eternity and about meaning and purpose. And if they have a friend who just happens to be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, they begin to ask you, what do you think about this? And I find that sitting around watching a soccer game on a commercial break, all of a sudden, a friend will reach over and say, hey, could you help me understand this? You're a Christian, right? You're a pastor, so explain this to me. What attracts people is ultimately going to be what keeps them. If we try to attract people to our churches or to our Bible studies through flashy means, they'll only stay as long as it remains the flashiest show in town. And church planters a lot of times make stupid decisions. And um, I heard about this church planter, and at his first gathering, his first Sunday service, he was giving away a motorcycle, and so 800 people showed up. I mean, I'd go to a mosque if they were giving away a motorcycle, you know? <laughs> And uh, so the next week, he gave away a Mac, a Mac laptop, and um, he had like 300 or 500 people, I think, show up. And then the week after that, he gave away some iPads, and he had 300 people show up. And you get the trend here. He's given away less and less each week, and less and less people come. Eventually, he exhausts all the resources, the tens of thousands of dollars he sat aside to gather people, and he gets down to a week where he has nothing to give away, and he has 10 people there. See, how we gather a crowd is going to be what keeps a crowd. If we gather people through relationships, they'll stay because those relationships are what brought them here and what will keep them here. I, I read a recent survey um, on the number one reason that an unchurched person, someone who hadn't attended church for at least two years, why they started attending church again, and the number one answer was because of a relationship. It wasn't because they had the right speaker at the church or the right music or the right programs or the right atmosphere. They came because they had built a relationship with someone who went there, and they came with that person. See, disgruntled Christians will go to another church for the right music and the right speaker. But people far from God go to church because of a relationship that people passionate about Jesus build with them. People will come when we've built meaningful relationships with them, when there's been enough trust to bridge that they will gather with us. So that's the first one, be with people. I think Jesus did that. And the second aspect of Jesus making disciples is intentionally shared meals. Dehati Lewis is a church planter in Atlanta, Georgia. And I love this quote. He said, the apologetic of our time is authenticity. People don't want educated answers 
to explain the mysteries of our world. They want to see that your Christianity is actually real. They want to see that it's authentic, that it's not just something you say, it's something that you show. And in this regard, I think that our dinner tables are perhaps the greatest gospel weapon we have in the modern American culture today. Invite people around your dinner table who don't look like you or act like you, who don't believe like you or vote like you, who don't talk like you. Your home should not be a fortress to hide from the wicked, evil culture. Your home should be an opportunity, a tool to invite the wicked in to encounter a good and loving, gracious Jesus. You remember Jesus was accused of eating with sinners, right? That's, that's what they said. They said, Jesus always eating with sinners in Luke 7:34 and many other places. They, they kept accusing Jesus of this. Your master is always eating with sinners. Eating together does something. It lowers walls. It lowers defenses. It emotionally bonds people. Most dates involve, first dates involve a meal, right? Because there's something psychologically bonding about that. And we've had people who are atheists and agnostics and people who are homosexuals and transgender and Wiccans and every other possible title and identity that people have for themselves around our table. And we sit down and we have a meal together. And there are people who say things, and I think, oh, my word, what are you talking about? And there's people who say things, and I'm like, I wish I could wash my ears out with soap right now. But what happens is they know that they can come in, and I want to talk to them about, hey, what is going on in your life? Do you have answers to these spiritual questions we all have? Because here's the answers that I found in Jesus, and this is how it resonates with me. And something happens when we move our Christianity from a distance where we're just telling them how things are, and we invite them into our life, and they get to see what Jesus looks like on an everyday basis. When they get to see Jesus at a dinner table, it begins to change the discussion. It begins to build trust. And finally, Jesus also healed and helped. And I believe that serving in the community builds trust with the community, and affirms that the church exists to serve and not be served. There's a lot of cynical people about the church. I remember my grandfather was not a believer, and he used to say every time they'd pass a, uh, a basket or they'd pass a, uh, a plate to gather the offering, they're like, pastor just stuff all that in their pants. That's what he'd always say. The pastor just stuffs all that in his pockets. I'm like, I'm not sure that's how it happens. You know, there's lights and there's building, you know, there's different stuff. But that, that's his impression. And our culture today has a very cynical impression of institutions and of churches especially. And unfortunately, sometimes bad things have been done in the name of Jesus. But when we serve, it begins to build trust. It begins to help them see that the church doesn't exist to take from them, but to give to them. Jesus healed people, and I can't heal people, but I can heal things that are broken in my world. And when I do that, they begin to see me not as an enemy or an opponent or someone to fight with, but someone who they can work alongside with. There's been many times where the only time I've had a conversation with an atheist who has a high degree and lots of money, and I have no business even talking to them, is because we both volunteered for a community event, and I got alongside him, and he says, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor starting a church from nothing. And he's like, wow, that's weird. I'm a uh, you know, Yale-trained lawyer. And I'm like, oh, that's 
that's nice. And so we begin talking about our worldviews and our lives. And he begins talking about, well, when I was a kid, I went to church. And this is what I heard. And I didn't like it. And so I left it. And I begin sharing with him the message of Jesus Christ. See, when we begin to serve, it begins to lower barriers. See, I believe that gospel action creates bridges for gospel proclamation. And serving in the community has allowed me to share Jesus with people who are far, far away from God, and they would never come to my church, they would never come to my small group, and if they knew I was a pastor, they would never ever talk to me. Next, you see that Jesus says that we should make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I think it's interesting that baptizing them comes after discipling them. When I grew up, what I was always told was you evangelize people far away from God, and then when they become a follower of Jesus, then you disciple them. And I think that's an unhelpful, non-biblical dichotomy between evangelism and discipleship. I think it's all discipleship. We're leading everyone to become followers of Jesus Christ. Evangelism isn't harvesting. I used to think, man, I'm a horrible evangelist because I've only been able to lead a few people to accept Jesus Christ. Evangelism is removing barriers between people and Jesus. If when you leave that person, you've removed a barrier that used to exist between them and Jesus, you have been successful in being um, in evangelizing. Hopefully, as more and more of those barriers are removed, they reach a point where they recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and they turn to him and admit their sins and that they need him. But all of it is discipleship. The church does not exist to meet the needs of Christians. The church is Christians. We are the church. We don't exist to meet our own needs We exist to reach people far away from God. Discipleship is learning to become a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved. We're still being discipled. We're still learning how to live and love like him. And we're inviting people. There's a a young person who was baptized in October in our church. And um, I just sat down with them this week. And they were saying, you know, I was trying to follow what you were saying about the way that Jesus lived and loved, but I realized I couldn't do it. And that took me to a point where I realized I needed Jesus's strength to do it. And I'm like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. That's exactly what I want to hear. And a young man made a profession of faith and was baptized and now is beginning to continue learning to live and love like Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit now enabling that. And you'll notice here last that Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. He doesn't say just teach them what I've commanded you, but teach them to observe it, to obey it. As American churches, we tend to think of discipleship as having the right theology, but really it's about living like Jesus. See, Jesus just didn't want people who could name all the books of the Bible, even though that's good, He wanted people who did what he did, who treated people like he did, and loved people like he loved people. He didn't just want people who could memorize what he taught in Greek, but people who lived it Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not just for an hour on Sunday. 
In John 14, 23, Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think perhaps the greatest sin in the American church is that we've learned a lot about Jesus without looking a lot like Jesus. See, we've doubled down on the informational side of Christianity, and we've learned a lot of things, and we've ignored the incarnational side, the actually being disciples of Jesus Christ in our workplaces and in our homes and in our communities. And this seems like a huge thing. He tells them to go everywhere and make disciples of all nations. But he gives us this comforting thought in verse 20. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus is asking us to go in his name and in his power and with him. You're working alongside Jesus in the world as he draws men and women and boys and girls to himself. He has promised that we go in his power and we stay in his presence if we live our lives making disciples. If you want to experience the presence of God, if you want to see the power of God, make disciples. If your Christianity is boring, might I challenge you that it's because you haven't been making disciples. Some of the most crazy, sometimes messed up, complicated situations happen because I've built relationships with people far away from God. And it takes me to weird places and into weird situations. And I have conversations with people I have no business talking to because I'm trying to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so I'm chasing the threads that he lays out in front of me, the relationships that he's given me. I try to build trust with so I can talk about Jesus and invite people to live and love like he did. In the, uh, I'm a big fan of spy shows and spy movies. And in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of conspiracies about sleeper agents. You guys remember this or have you heard of this where, you know, you would get a phone call and they would say some code phrase and you didn't know it, but you had been brainwashed. And now you were activated and you'd go out and assassinate the president or a, a senator or something. And you had no control over yourself because you were a sleeper spy embedded into everyday life. And so there were television shows and movies about this. But I want this message to be an activation code for you. Not so that you become assassins in your community. That'd be bad. But so that you become ambassadors in your community. Ambassadors for Jesus Christ. He strategically placed you where you are, not by accident. You're not at that job you hate by accident. You're not in that neighborhood with those neighbors you hate by accident. You're not in this community that might annoy you at times by accident. You're not in this city or this nation by accident. You've been strategically placed for a divine purpose to make disciples. You and I have been placed around people, with people, to build trust with people far away from God so that we can teach them to live and love like Jesus. See, I believe that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, exists to change the world. Because Jesus changes everything he touches. And he changes people through people because he changes things through relationships. I believe that students of Jesus Christ who become students of the way that he lived and loved, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can change cities and can change communities and neighborhoods and workplaces and businesses and homes. And I believe that Jesus is still 2,000 years later whispering across the universe, go and make disciples. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, and thank you that you've invited us into the greatest mission in the world to join you in transforming lives and rescuing people out of darkness. And you've called us to go into our everyday life and make disciples. Most ministry doesn't happen here because most of our life isn't here. Most of our life is out there. And Lord, forgive me for so often compartmentalizing my Christianity so that I think, well, I'll do some ministry things over here and in these places, but most of the time I'm over here doing my own thing. And Lord, I miss the opportunities you've put in front of me because you've given me people far away from God who have spiritual questions, and you've given me the Holy Spirit who's creating opportunities. And Lord, I pray for these people that you will help them to see the opportunities, to build trust, to develop relationships, invite people into their homes, and begin to answer those questions with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray all these things like I believe you would pray. Amen.